Um, so thank you so much for, for this invitation. I think we're going to take a step back from talking about tangible projects to talking really about strategies for um, making our cities a lot more gender inclusive. I identify as, as a woman. I use she, her pronouns. So the lens that I'm using is my own. So we're going to talk a lot about women and cities and public spaces. So you know, what, what is a, you know, what is a gender equal city? I think let's get the definition right. I think a gender equal city is one where people of all gender identities don't just coexist, but actually thrive. The reality of our world is that we are coexisting. We are living in the same city together, but not everybody is is thriving um, and not everybody's needs are are prioritized so um you know so what is what does that city look like where all genders kind of come together and thrive it's a city where you can see joy and happiness and well-being equally represented across gender identities so in this case like i said women and i tend to focus a lot on younger women so young girls and their presence in in our city and the way to create this kind of a city where all gender identities thrive is to actually try to step into their shoes, is actually try to bring their voices and their experiences to the forefront. Because you can't create something that you can't see. You first have to try and see the different perspectives and different lived experiences. So that's where we're going to begin. But the reality is that even with all the recent gains that we've had recently in fields like architecture and city government, we still don't have a lot of women women represented in the key positions. So you don't see the the books that we use to design our cities or the architects that are out there designing our cities or the urban planners. You don't see a lot of them sharing this, you know, the she, her identity, sharing, sharing this gender identity. Even if in architecture school, you see kind of a 50-50 representation now with, with um, women, men, and, and some other gender um, identities represented. Further into the career and further into the, the pipeline, women start to, to disappear from, from these professions and from these roles. So we need to see how, you know, how other gender identities interact with the space, but just the people who are designing these spaces are, are not often representative of different genders. And this is not just a, you know, South Asia problem. This is not just an India problem where I am born and raised. This problem can be seen in other places as well. So this is the case of, you know, New York City in the United States, which was my home right before where I'm now. I'm currently based in, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. But before that, I was in New York City. And what you see is that there are more um, women in general living in New York City than there are men. But at the same time, our representation on something as crucial as the city council, you know, people who make decisions for us and write policies, our representations are by no means 50-50. There are far fewer women in the city council than there are men. So this is kind of an example of what I was talking about, that our, our power dynamics don't match our actual demographics on um, on almost any level. Uh, and that's that shouldn't be surprising for anybody who's interested in this topic. And yet, women are the ones who are more vulnerable to a lot of different things like poverty and um all the problems, all the social issues that are associated with that. So in this graph, what, it, what you can see is that women are much more um, vulnerable to issues of poverty. And therefore, they are a more vulnerable population when we think about city design and the life that we create there. 
So this is, again, this is just in numbers showing you that the largest demographic living in poverty, it's generally women, but women in the age groups of 25 to 34 first, and then, you know, 35 to 44, followed by uh, younger women. So what do we need to do to start to shift it? I think we start to think about these vulnerable populations, these younger women living in cities that we know are much more vulnerable to poverty and other social issues, we need to center them in our conversation. We need to center them in our population, uh, sorry, in our policymaking and in the designing of our cities. So today I will first talk about, you know, this these 10 steps to gender mainstreaming in our cities. And then I'll give you some of my kind of popular tips and tricks to um, create public spaces that are much more inviting for women. So the first thing we need to do is we first need to acknowledge that there is a gap. That is where we have to begin. First, let's acknowledge that there is a problem. Um, and then we can start to address that problem by acknowledging it first and foremost. So the second thing we do after we acknowledge that, yes, there is a problem. Women are not after at the forefront of city design, women's needs are not being considered, let's acknowledge that. And then let's start to do our homework. Let's start to read into at what levels and in what places do, does this discrimination show up? I would highly, highly recommend this book that I've put on the screen there, Invisible Women. And this kind of shows you the data biases in the world that we live in, a world that is largely created by men and for men. So almost as if, you know, we're women are living in different shoes. We're wearing a different size shoes for the rest of our lives and imagine the kind of discomfort that must be causing us. And this shows up in a lot of different urban systems. So public space is one I specialize in and I've talked about a lot, but it also shows up in our education and childcare. It shows up in our healthcare system. It shows up in housing, food access, transportation, wayfinding, all of these systems that together create the city, that gender gap shows up in all of them. So let's start to learn and educate ourselves. Um, then the next thing we do is learn how power and agency works in these systems. So when we talk about public spaces and we talk about healthcare, what is the power dynamic in those systems? Who make, gets to make decisions? Who gets to make policy? And then who gets to be the caregiver on the forefront? And once we understand the power systems is when we can start to disrupt these power systems. So the systemic approach um, is, is the third one. And then once we understand all of those power systems and where power lies, then let's start to think about sharing that power and checking our biases on a daily basis. So who gets to be the decision maker in the healthcare sector? If we understand that power lives in that particular position, then let's start to think about women and other gender minorities being represented in those uh, positions of power. And also on a daily basis, let's start to check where our biases are, that when we talk about a decision maker, does our image immediately go to you know a, a heterosexual male holding that position? And then once those positions are identified, let's start to change our leadership. Let's start to think about um, those different identities of gender and race showing up in these positions so that when a little girl wakes up and thinks about a city that she can thrive in and be a part of change in, that she has something to identify it with. She knows that she can be a city councilor. She knows that she can be a mayor and her leadership can one day create better experience for other women in the city. And the second user group that we need to empower after that, you know, kind of like top power people is the people who are the interpreters. So, you know, policymakers create big, broad policies. But then on a day to day basis, it's the architects and urban planners um, and other practitioners who kind of interpret this policy, these policies and create your cities and your day to day experience. So, as I said before, even though you will see that in architecture schools and urban planning and so forth, 
women are starting to show up in good numbers in terms of students. But then as you see further down in the pipeline, um, the gender representation is not the same. So how do we actually create workplaces that empower women, that keep them engaged, so that there are more and more interpreters of these policies and planning manuals that identify as women and other genders? Step number seven is let's start to actually consult women when we're building our city. So when we're thinking about creating new public spaces or um, refurbishing and re-energizing other older public spaces, some of the examples that we saw in the previous presentation, let's actually consult women and ask them, what are some of the biggest challenges that they face? What are some of the things that they need in their cities and public spaces? And start to fold that into our policymaking, in our plans, in our construction documents, and the final products in our cities that we create. And then once we have consulted the women, let's actually work women, with women in making these ideas, these plans, these policies a reality. So this is one of my favorite images to show that, you know, when you empower women and work with them and give them agency in their public space, the level of um, sort of returns that you reap in terms of women feeling comfortable and performing to kind of their 100% um, are enormous. So let's start to actually work with women. And there are different groups that are making these kinds of things possible now, facilitating hiring of women. So celebrating women who build in this case, you know. So there are different groups, nonprofits and other agencies out there that can actually help you in this agenda of working with women as we reshape our cities. As women ourselves, so this is a this is a step for women themselves. Embrace your lived experience. So, you know, growing up in, in India, in northern India, and then living a bulk of my, my life in the United States and now in Europe, I know that in some ways that I experience my city is different from the way a male cousin of mine might experience. You know, in, in India, sometimes I would, well, oftentimes I would not go out alone after dark. There are certain types of spaces where I wouldn't go because I was afraid. And sometimes we talk about these things and other times we don't. So I think us as women ourselves, we have to start to embrace that our lived experience in a city might be different. The things that we need in our cities might be different from what um, men might need and from what other gender identities might need. So let's start to embrace that first. And then when positions of power open up for us, if I, you know, in a hypothetical universe, get to be, um, sit on the city council one day, then start to grow into the power that's now being given to us. If systems do start to change and we get allies in the field, learn to grow into that power. This is actually my own photo and one of my favorite photos that I like to, to show in this, because I'm learning on a day-to-day -day basis to grow into my own power. It's, it's a ongoing process, it's not easy. And we have to know that us as a small group of engaged, thoughtful citizens, we can in fact change the world. We have a voice. We are in some way effective and uh, powerful out there in whatever realm of life we're in and whatever profession we are in and know that, yes, we can, in fact, change the world by starting to change um, the power that we hold on an everyday basis. So a few of my own favorite tips for public spaces, because Niharika asked me about particularly how we think about the gender lens in, in public space. So here are some of mine, and they are based on my lived experience and things that I like to see in public spaces. So first of all, I really like when public spaces and public transit as a system overlap. I don't drive. I use public transit a lot. I walk, I cycle, and these are the ways that in which I access my city, in which I get places. So the more our public space system can be attached to our public transit system, the better it works for me. And we would notice for 
some other women and caregivers, this is also a very important um, aspect of public space use. The second is, you know, the multimodality of our systems. You know, some people like to use public transit. Other people like to use bicycles. Like I said, I now live in the Netherlands and there is a pretty robust system and culture of cycling. And then a lot of people like to walk. So depending on our preferences and our ability and our socioeconomic status, we have different preferences for getting around. So multimodal systems that, again, overlap with public realm are very helpful in creating a thriving public space. And then here's this like really big, broad concept of prospect and refuge. So what is that concept? Particularly women like to be in places where they feel like they can see a lot of things and yet they have some level of shelter. You know, so if there is um, a bench that is a flat bench without a backrest and then there's a bench with a backrest, I oftentimes like to sit in the one with a backrest because it makes me feel like I have some sort of refuge, I have a place of my own, and yet I can see the public space activity. So start to think about that idea of prospect and refuge where you can see without being seen and implement that in the public realm is really helpful in creating a comfortable space for, for women. I also really like when entrance and exit strategies in public spaces are really clearly marked so that not only do I know how to get inside a public space, but I also know when to leave if I feel uncomfortable. So through wayfinding, through you know glow in the dark signs or whatever, depending on the cultural context, making it really clear how you enter and exit a public space is really helpful. And then, you know, doing a trial run. So this is this is the Riverwalk in San Antonio. It is definitely one of my favorite places, but not this spot. This is the area that almost always makes me feel very, very uncomfortable because, you know, it feels like I'm alone. It feels like I'm pressed between a wall and, and the water on the other side. And there's no place for me to escape. There's no place for me to sort of get out. And if when this place was being designed, people like somebody like me was consulted, I would have said that this is probably the wrong design. So doing like a trial run, getting actual users that you're trying to attract, getting them to use a public space, getting them to provide input is really helpful. And particularly a place like this that can make you feel a little trapped makes me feel very self-conscious. The other thing that I think is, is a trap in public spaces is like these kind of darker corners, these nooks and crannies. And you know that these are the kinds of benches where you will find whatever you define as a negative activity in a public space often tends to take place in these nooks and crannies. So trying to steer clear of nooks and crannies if you're trying to create an attractive place for women is really helpful as well. And then when you're thinking about programming, when you're thinking about activities in public space, what are the activities that really center women? So this is a photograph from Rahagiri Day in, in New Delhi. It's one of my favorite photographs. And Indians, you know, we're, we're a dancing culture. We like to play live music. We like to dance. And it is kind of a both gender um, and other identities thing. We all enjoy this. So when you're thinking about programming, really centering the programs that women like, the activities that women like to do is often a good way of attracting women to public spaces. And then the other thing is, um, another really cool trick, is restrooms and clean facilities. This is one of my favorite restrooms. It's in Bryant Park in New York City. And you can see here, it's like, it's an inviting space. You know, there's flowers here. There's an entrance that looks directly towards the street. So it has some eyes on it. There's flesh flowers inside. It's kept very, very clean. Um, and oftentimes, if you ask almost any woman and ask her how many times she's been in public spaces and wanted to use a restroom and couldn't find a clean one or a safe one that she could trust, 
many women will tell you that that was a problem. So creating facilities that we need and making sure that they're clean and accessible is also really helpful. And then providing places where you can sit down. You can sit down alone or you can sit down with someone through something as simple as, you know, movable chairs. Uh, this is, if you've heard any project for public spaces talk or you've seen any public space recipe um, in placemaking, movable chairs are great ingredients. So creating the kind of furniture that allows you to customize your own experience um, is another great way. And here you can see that both women kind of have their own sense of prospect and refuge, what I was talking about. So their backs are towards this flower bed. So they feel like they have a little bit of a shelter in space of their own, and yet they can look at each other and look at the public space activity. So it creates a lot of prospect and, and refuge for women. And then places that create for multi-generational experiences, I think is also something very attractive to me and, and several other women I've talked to. So a market that you can go to where there's something to do for little kids, something to do for the elderly and, and something that you can access relatively easily on a wheelchair. So multi-generational and multiple levels of access experiences are also really helpful in, in the public world. And then playfulness. This is uh, an example of James Rojas's Place It exercise. So this is a public space consultation, community engagement kind of activity, which is very playful, you know, through the use of toys and Legos, tell us how you like your city to be. So creating playfulness and community engagement processes is also a great way to create um, public spaces that are attractive for women. And then first, and you know, like at the end of everything, what we're trying to do as placemakers is to create a positive meaning for, for women and, and young girls, because a place is a social psychological construct. It is the overlapping of positive meaning on a space. So if we are aiming for a positive experience, a positive meaning for women and girls, that is what we'll end up with. And there's no shortage of tools that we can then utilize with that um, idea in mind that we're aiming for positive experiences. We're aiming for positive uses and activities. We're aiming for creating comfort and image for women. We're aiming for positive access and linkage and we're creating, um, aiming for a positive social experience for women. We can utilize the tools if we start to change our, our lens because I believe a woman's place is is everywhere in the city. Um, it's in the revolution. It's in the public space. It's in city council. It's in, you know, a small marketplace in a public space. It's absolutely everywhere. But it's our job to make sure that we create a place that is inviting enough for women. So I will stop there.